Welcome to the RCI podcast series. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Jeffrey Vender on respiratory compromise, non-operating room anesthesia, and post-operative opioid respiratory depression. Is there a role for better monitoring? Dr. Vender will be available via email to answer any questions. Listen for the email address at the end of this podcast. And now, here's Jeffrey Vender. Welcome. I'm Jeffrey Vender, and today we're going to be talking about respiratory compromise with a specific focus on non-operating room anesthesia and post-operative opioid respiratory depression, and is there a role for better monitoring? For full disclosure, I have education and or consulting relationships with Covidian, a Medtronic company, and Medline. The objectives of this webinar define, first of all, what is respiratory compromise? and then review the issues regarding respiratory compromise in clinical practice, but in particular, non-operating room anesthesia and opioid respiratory depression, and then finish it with discussing the roles for better monitoring in these situations. By way of definition, there are many attempts at it, but the one I liked the best was in a respiratory care article by Tim Morris and others that said respiratory compromise is defined as a state in which there is a high likelihood of decompensation into respiratory failure or death, but which specific interventions, be it enhanced monitoring and or therapies, might prevent or mitigate decompensation. If we think about it on a spectrum of pathophysiology with mortality going up and severity of illness going across, We often, most of us, exist in a very stable respiratory status. No problem at all. Now, whether we get the flu or pneumonia or COVID or just a bad asthma attack, you can see as severity of respiratory illness increases all the way to respiratory failure, mortality progressively increases, and with the color change, at some point, you're admitted to an ICU. Respiratory compromise sits in that time frame where we have most efficacy to intervene and prevent. When we look at the numbers, be it how common this is, costly, or preventable, as it shows here, it's the second leading avoidable patient safety issue. Third, most rapidly increasing inpatient cost in the U.S. Then deaths, third. And as far as leading increasing hospital costs, fifth. Now, this data is taken from a statistical analysis years ago, but not much different today. Respiratory compromise, we're not talking about a chronic state of COPD, chronic bronchitis, or the likes. We're looking at an onset that's either de novo in a healthy individual or an acute event in somebody with underlying pulmonary pathology. The pathophysiologic subsets for respiratory compromise are many. And the one we're going to focus on today because of the influence of sedation, procedural sedation, and opioids is that due to impaired control of breathing. So no, we're not discussing parenchymal lung disease, be it ARDS, COVID, or pneumonia. We're not looking at asthma or increased airway resistance or cardiac failure, be it right or left ventricular failure, all which can lead to respiratory compromise. We're looking at the one most remedial to our situation especially in anesthesia. When we look at high-risk groups for impaired control of breathing, we're looking at anybody who's receiving procedural sedation, post-op sedation, and or analgesia. 
patients with already underlying CNS pathology, neuromuscular disease, sleep apnea. Physiologic responses are evident in the context of hypercarbia as a common one, respiratory acidosis as a result of that hypercarbia, and hypoxemia, but in this particular case, because it's impaired control of breathing and not parenchymal disease, it's often hypoventilation-induced. Altered mental status, reduced respiratory rate, heart rate variability, decreased respiratory efforts in somnolence are all early signs. And the classic monitoring for this has always been pulse oximetry, ideally continuous in the high-risk patient, electrocardiograms, periodic blood gases, and we're going to focus a little about end-tidal CO2 today, CO2 today, and then frequent evaluation of level of consciousness. When I think of severity as it relates to the deteriorating process, again, mortality against symptoms. The severity is a stable COPD patient who suddenly has underlying acute disease and work of breathing exceeds their reserves. In time, they will go into hypercarbic respiratory failure. And again, you can see where it says ICU admission as it progresses along this spectrum of severity. But there's also risk. Risk from uncontrolled pain, but very little mortality. Alert pain-free, again, very little mortality. To in time, new issues begin to develop, be it delirium, uncontrolled airway, or even aspiration pneumonia, and you can see mortality changing because of underlying risk to the individual. Risk factors for respiratory compromise are many. They can be broken down into three categories. Patient factors, area of care factors, and with non-operating room anesthesia, that's a big one, and treatment factors. When we look at patient factors, the most obvious are BMI, morbid obesity, supermorbid obesity, underlying comorbidities, be it cardiopulmonary, neuromuscular, and the likes, and unknown diagnoses, which are very common in the anesthesia world, of sleep apnea. When we look at treatment factors, previous anesthesia, thoracic or abdominal surgery, which impairs respiratory and ventilatory muscles, opioids and other respiratory depressants often used in combination in conjunction with the administration of the anesthesia, sedation, or analgesia. And then finally, area of care factors. What is the patient-nurse ratio? In the ICU where it's more highly monitored or the frequency of vital signs could be continuous, they're going to be reduced. But when we look at the general surgical or medical floors where many patients are receiving analgesics and sedatives, it's a little bit different. When we bring these factors together in specific human beings, you can only imagine the perfect storm that develops and increases the risk for respiratory compromise. When we look specifically at opioid-induced respiratory depression, again, going back to the classic sleep apneic patient being more at risk or morbidly obese patient, snoring older age has been shown to dramatically increase the risk of respiratory compromise, progressively increasing over age 60. Uh, opioid naive, very at risk. Post-surgery, again, abdominal, thoracic, longer procedures, receiving other sedating drugs and the likes. When we look specifically at procedural sedation, higher ASA status, the length, inadequate monitoring, many of the same things. The real issue based on what the APSF has said is selective monitoring based on risk assessment is likely to miss respiratory impressions, depression in patients without risk factors. 
selective monitoring. So the difference between selective and continuous. As a working diagnosis or definition, what is procedural sedation? And as I allude to in the title, analgesia. It's the use of hypnotics or analgesic medications to enable the performance of a diagnostic or therapeutic procedure effectively, whilst the patient's is closely monitored potential adverse effects. This is not about giving anti-anxiety medications. It is specifically related to diagnostic and therapeutic procedures. Now we've got lots of data from closed claims databases by Lori Lee and others. This is an older one taken by Roberts at all in current opinions in anesthesiology. They found in their closed claims analysis for non-operating room anesthesia, respiratory events were 38% of the time, equipment-related events 21%, and other events as noted below. So respiratory events are very common. But much more importantly, they saw a higher injury severity in the closed claims database as evidenced by looking at death as a percent of the events in the closed claims for non-operative 54% versus the closed claims on OR anesthesia only 24%. And then most importantly, when they reviewed the quality of the care that was delivered in non-operating room anesthesia, 63% were determined to be substandard versus 29% in the operating room and preventable by better monitoring, 25% versus 7%. This should not come as a surprise to us since all of the standards that have been implemented for operating room anesthesia in an environment that we are much more comfortable and supported in versus the transition to the non-operating room anesthesia world. When I think about risk and crisis management, this is abstracted from a Dan Deermeyer book called Reputation Rules. And it looks about the intensity of a problem over time. And he breaks it down into the dotted line is one's ability to control through their actions an event, the intensity. And then it's contrasted with the stakes or how bad things can get. So if you look at optimal time to act on the far left, one can see our control is at its highest and our risks are at its least. So you can think about this before we induce somebody or before we start a procedure of any kind. In time, if things begin to change and we have not acted, and then you can see in the middle where the lines cross, you can see that's the typical time to act the control has diminished, but the stakes have worsened. Uh, when we look at the idea of managing crisis management to the right versus risk management, when those lines cross or when we first identify a problem, we seek to contain it and then we look for solutions to it. But as I said, we have already begun to lose control in this particular situation. And through better anticipation, we could have put things in place to prevent or prepare, which is the difference between risk management and crisis management. Now, we're talking about respiratory compromise. And this 2004 article looking at how supplemental oxygen impairs the detection of hypoventilation, as I said, hypoxemia with respiratory compromise from impaired control of breathing is typically hypoventilation induced. You can see, uh, it says arterial oxygen desaturation 
is a late sign of hypoventilation. And in this caricature here, you can see at the top, they're looking at room air. And you can see the dotted lines and what happens to the black circles as oxygenation falls on room air, you can see the CO2 is going up. So when you're on room air, there's a relatively quick response. But look at the pulse oximetry tracing in the bottom graph on 30%, not 50, and hypoventilation over time. There's been very little fall over 10 minutes in the patient's arterial saturations, but a significant increase in their end tidal CO2 because it's masked by the in increased inspired oxygen. When we think about hyperventilation as a compensatory response, again, looking at supplemental O2 at the top, staying much stabler and higher than without supplemental O2. And we see at the bottom, CO2 initially, as we become hypoxemic or we have respiratory issues, quite often we will begin to hyperventilate. And only when you see the O2 really fall do you see the CO2 markedly climb as the respiratory rate and minute ventilation go up below. So there's often a hyperventilatory response to hypoxemia. So if we think about this problem, who is it we're taking care of, what should we be doing, and when and where? As I said today, we're not talking about operating room anesthesia where our care has been markedly improved over time with improved standards and improved monitoring. We're talking about non-operating room environments, general surgical floors, general medical floors. And the one technology that has been so helpful to us in the operating room and for anesthesiologists has now become commonplace in non-operating room is capnography. Now, as anesthesia providers or non-anesthesia providers know, capnography is just a measurement of exhaled respiratory gases. It can be done mainstream or sidestream. It produces a classic capnographic tracing and a capnogram with the end tidal CO2 being at the end of expiration in phase three, uh, just prior to the next inspiration where the end tidal CO2 abruptly falls off, giving us a characteristic tracing as we see here. This identifies a few things. One, it shows the slope of the curve. And if there's effective emptying of the VQ, it also shows the correlation between the end tidal CO2 and alveolar in non-cardiac situations and gives you some reflection on adequacy of ventilation. And then finally, it gives us respiratory rate or absence of respiratory rate by the frequency of each breath. End tidal CO2 captures many, many things for us, whether it's increased end tidal CO2 or decreased end tidal CO2. And as you can see below, when we look at respiratory monitoring, hypoventilation, depending on the size of the breaths and the rate, often demonstrates itself with an increased end tidal CO2, but we must recognize in situations where there's shallow breathing, it could actually be a reduction in the end tidal CO2 because of dead space coming out first. The clinical applications for capnography are many. We're very familiar with an intraoperative. Today we're talking about non-operating room, but the PACU today, ERs, transportation of intubated patients, ACLS as a monitor for adequacy of ACLS, 
hypoventilation monitoring on the wards and the ICUs. As this editorial infers by Whitaker, time for capnography everywhere, which is somewhat suggested by the numerous places we find ourselves using it. Capnography outside the operating room has been a project. And this is a 2011 statement from the Association Anestis of Great Britain and Ireland. And it says, ubiquitous use of capnography in the OR, but slower adoption for non-operating room anesthesia. And in their review of airway complications and issues, just like the U.S., where they showed 61% suffered neurologic damage or died outside the operating room versus 14% during, they cited lack of capnography as a major risk factor. Uh, this shouldn't surprise anybody in anesthesia, but as we all know, even today, in the GI labs, as I'll show in a second, our standard of care is for capnography. But the gastroenterologic societies, where they're doing the sedation with nurses, have not adopted the same policies or procedures, to my knowledge. Now, capnography can do many things, and as I alluded to in a second, if you don't have the tracing and you don't have any breaths, it can suggest apnea. And this study in 04, early on, 16 years ago, that apnea of at least 20 seconds tends to occur in 25% of the patients who receive max, and the detection by observation of clinical signs is absolutely unreliable. And I'll show some evidence to that in a little while. When we think about end tidal CO2 and hypoventilation, again, presuming effective breathing, maybe at a slow rate, as our end tidal CO2 rises, our oxygen will fall in time because of reduced volume of oxygen in the underventilated alveoli. We can see the effects of two, just two liters of nasal cannula can su suppress the demunition in the oxygen saturation for several minutes and much earlier than if people are on room air. This study from 06 was specific to an emergency room department for non-anesthesia-performed sedation, similar to what I said in the GI lab. And they looked at 60 patients, and they defined a respiratory event as a saturation of less than 92%, of which they had 20. 85% had an abnormal NT-cytal CO2, where 70% of those changes were noted before the change in the SAO2. British Medical Journal Patient Safety During Procedural Sedation, they looked at 13 randomized control trials with sedation-related events with primary endpoints of desaturation and hypoxemia. What they found is by adding capnography to the visual assessment and the pulse oximetry significantly reduced events in all three categories of mild, severe, hypoxemia, as well as the need for assisted ventilation. There was a 53% reduction in these studies to assist ventilation with the additional use of capnography. This is from the GI world, where they used capnography and looked at their outcome in a mass database from 2017. So they looked at 250 plus thousand inpatients, 3.8 million outpatients, there was a 47% reduction in the odds of a death at discharge in the inpatient category, 
a 61% reduction in the odds of a pharmacologic rescue agent on outpatients, whether it's giving reversal for narcotics or reversal for sedatives, and an 82% reduction in the odds of death. Now, obviously, these are not common or current events. So these numbers cannot produce statistical significance, but they point to the fact that these events occur and capnography can reduce them. So as a result of that, the American Society of Anesthesia came out with a statement on the use of propofol. And they said, even if moderate sedation is attended, patients receiving propofol should receive care consistent with that required for date sedation. And because sedation is a continuum, it's not always easy to predict on the individual patient. So therefore, just like the operating room, the practice guidelines that came out by multiple societies, and as you'll notice, the gastroenterologists are not on here, uh, the practice guidelines that were modified or replaced from 02 and 18, the new recommendation, continual monitoring of ventilatory function with capnography to supplement standard monitoring by observation and pulse oximetry. So they've now made this a standard of care for anesthesiologists. Again, uh, other organizations, this is from anesthesia in 16. There's a strong argument on safety grounds that patients undergoing procedural sedation should have capnography routinely available. And that more importantly, it says at the bottom, there needs to be appropriate training of the staff so they understand what is transpiring and the fact that they have a rate or don't have a rate is one thing, but what do changes in end tidal CO2 really mean? The European Society, similar to the U.S. in 18, adopted this guideline, and it says capnography by facilitating early detection of ventilation problems should be used in all patients undergoing procedural sedation. So similar to the ASA, similar adoption of a guideline. Now, in the effort to do this, we should do the best we can. And I just want to draw attention to one article by Ebert that looked at the effectiveness of oxygen delivery and the reliability of CO2 carbon dioxide waveforms by different types of nasal cannula. And what they were looking at was apnea of at least 20 seconds in the max. And they compared four different nasal cannula designs. The Hudson, where the O2 and CO2 come out both prongs, the Salter, where they come out separate, and then the Medline and Iridian, uh, that both there's a uh, pass-by, a blow-by for their O2 delivery cloud. And this is what these cannulas look like. And, and you can see the Iridian and this Medline, there's a separate blow-by, the green arrows, where if you look at the Salter, you can see it's in different prongs. And the point they make is oxygen flow on the bottom side, when you start putting oxygen in, it's mixing with your end tidal CO2. And it can diminish the end tidal CO2 by diluting it out, depending on the type of cannula. So if you look at the top, it seems whatever system they were using, the black, top of the black lines, the end tidal CO2 is very stable, even after they started fresh gas flow and we're analyzing. On the bottom, it markedly diminished, but the impact on the green line of oxygenation did not change. If we look at the four kinds, 
Clearly, the best for measuring mean and tidal CO2 at all levels of fresh glass flow is the separate nasal prongs, followed by the O2 blow by dual vents, and then you can see the impact on the bifurcated nasal prongs. Oxygen is pretty good with all of them, uh, but again, the separate nasal prongs do seem to do a little bit better, and the blow-bys may be not even as good as the bifurcated. I want to switch from the non-operating room world that we were just talking about, be it interventional radiology, the cardiology suites, the GI suites, and everywhere we provide care today, to a new frontier, which has become the ward where more and more patients go who are sicker and sicker. And just a couple of quick studies that looked at this in this article by Sun in 2015, uh, they looked to determine the incidence, severity, and duration of post-op hypoxemia in post-op non-cardiac patients. And this was a pro prospective blinded observational study. They had 833 data points, and they found that 21% of these patients on the floor had over 10 minutes per hour with saturations less than 90%. 8% 20 minutes, and 8% had 5 minutes per hour or more, less than 85%. But the most interesting aspect of the study was that as per the nursing notes, 5% had a hypoxemic episode. So most of these episodes are missed, and therefore the recording or the notation or the observation of hypoxemia truly underestimates not just the frequency, but the severity and the duration of that hypoxemia. Similarly, a study that came out in 2017 looked at the impact of the additional monitoring with capnography in a meta-analysis. And this meta-analysis looked at nine studies. And first, they compared continuous pulse ox to standard of care and there was a 34% reduction in ICU transfers. So we know, just like many of us have, CPOEE floors for many of our patients. They are quite helpful in reducing ICU transfers. The, I, then the recognition of a significant hypoxemic event was improved 15 times. But when you looked at the recognition of a postoperative respiratory depression with the addition of capnography, there we found 11.5% versus 2.8%. So as the conclusion suggested from this meta-analysis, capnography was better at early detection of postoperative respiratory depression, especially in patients with oxygen supplementation, but that continuous pulse ox was clearly better than routine nurse observations. And none of this should come as a surprise based on data we've seen back in 2004 on the impacts of oxygen to patients and its ability to suppress our detection of hypoventilation. The hot area today, and not hot today, because as you can see from these APSF, the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation newsletter, dating back to 2006, they were talking about the dangers of post-operative opioids. In 2009, dangers of post-operative opioids. 2011, no patient shall be harmed by opioid-induced respiratory depression, and it goes on to this day.
So the magnitude of this problem still persists despite 14 years of talking about it. We know that their opioids are significantly implicated or associated with respiratory depression. 16% of adverse drug effects, this is from a Joint Commission Sentinel event alert. 29% related to improper monitoring. And most importantly, it was perceived to be preventable and for morbidity and mortality. Uh, this data from 2013 extracted from Powers, basically at that period of time suggested 13 million patients received PCA, a pretty broad range of recognizing uh, the sufferers from respiratory depression, 0.16 to 0.52, which leaves us somewhere between 20 and 676,000 patients. And as I said at the top, with the big push to suppress post-operative pain, and today we're doing better. We're using less narcotics. We're using more regional anesthesia. This problem has been greatly benefited by that transition. Some people refer it to the sixth vital sign. When we look at opioid events, this is looking at a closed claims analysis of post-operative opioid-induced respiratory depression, the magnitude of the problem, and this is from 2015 from Lori Lee. 77% resulted in severe brain damage or death. The contributing factors, multiple prescribers, concurrent non-opioid sedating medications, and most importantly, inadequate nursing assessment and response. A lot of that has to do with nurse-patient ratio and monitoring. If you look at the time between the last nursing check and the respiratory event occurring, a majority of these patients or within two hours of last being seen. So it's not that the patients are sitting unobserved forever. And 97% of the cases reviewed were believed to be preventable with better monitoring. So in conclusion, they said opioid-related adverse events are multifactorial, potentially preventable with better patient assessment, monitoring of sedation, oxygenation, and ventilation, and early response. And as we've learned in our own practices, Early response is typically done through vigilance and monitoring. The risk factors, when we talk, think about prevention, the obese patient, but the patient with low body weight is also at risk. Concomitant medications that potentiate the opioids. Pre-existing conditions, advanced age, as we talked about earlier, and the opioid naive. The classic CO2 narcosis, as you can see at the bottom, a diminution in the respiratory rate and eventually the middle minute ventilation, a progressively increasing CO2 over time. This is all hidden if they're on oxygen supplementation because your pulse oximeter doesn't change till late versus room air, which changes much more sequentially. This led to an article by Stolting, Continuous Postoperative Electronic Monitoring and the Will to Do It or Require It. And abstracted from it, you can see below or up top, um, Medicare events, number three post-operative event is respiratory failure. Hypoxemic events are underestimated. Earlier detection reduces the need for rescue. And I'm going to come back to that in a second because I think it's a failure to recognize, not a failure to rescue. And that's where early detection comes in. And then the APSF recommendation 
that says if supplemental oxygen is used, incorporation of ventilation monitoring to assess breathing or estimate arterial CO2 may be warranted. So a very important article from the APSF, which when we think about rescue, I want to come towards the end of this conversation and look at what have been termed rapid response teams, medical emergency teams, with the whole idea behind them. So this is not a code team to prevent morbidity and mortality in hospitalized patients. But that necessitates a system of an afferent limb to prospectively identify a deteriorating patient and an efferent limb to direct the clinical resources and appropriate triage at a higher level of care. When we look at some of the data that's been written, and this is just to example one, where they really could not show a difference in pre-intervention of their rapid response team and their post-intervention. And as the title says, respiratory rapid response teams may not change mortality rates. But when we assess many of these studies that weren't able to show, the question was it a failure to rescue by the response team or the timing of when the response team was called due to delayed recognition. This is one example from an article by Ganane in 2013 where they reviewed uh, a series of rapid responses. And this is just a figure from it. And this was over an aberrant vital sign that fulfilled their criterion to call. But as you notice in the second level, no medical emergency team call in 96% of the cases and nothing documented in 54% of those that were not called. So when you talk about the afferent limb, 96% who met their criteria did not activate their systems and therefore at some point might they have activated it it could clearly be too late. Similarly speaking, in Chen's study, looking at delayed emergency team calls and hospital mortality, they looked at a large number of patients and different events, and then they looked at baseline period were not called versus delayed called, and you can see patient outcome was dramatically affected. Where there was a delay, survival was 38% versus died of 62%, where it was not delayed, 52% versus 47%. Maybe there is something to the timing of this afferent limb. The afferent limb, no different than evoke potential monitoring and everything else, necessitates us monitoring the correct parameters that allow us the earliest detection. And as alluded to before, many of these patients are on oxygen therapy and therefore a change in their pulse oximity reading can be delayed. Many of these patients have higher nurse-patient ratios where they're not being observed if they're not on continuous alarm-monitored situations. So we will not change the outcome dramatically if we can't change this afferent limb. And that's got to be a focus of the future. The right monitors in the right places with the right people. I'd like to try to pull this all together and uh, bring all these different thoughts together quickly. And the best way to do it is to look at the future. And there was an initial study done called the Prodigy Study. And as you can see at the bottom, uh, Ashish Khanna uh, just published in Anesthesia Analgesia in 2020, the results of the Prodigy Study, which looked at predicting post-operative respiratory depression on the general ward. 
And their risk assessment tool was guided by the use of capnography, where they monitored patients for 24 to 48 hours using blinded, non-alarming capnography. So these individuals were blinded to it. They had a number of endpoints that they were watching for. Reduced respiratory rate, a high or low end tidal CO2, significant oxygen desaturation, or apnea greater than 30 seconds. And then they monitored to confirm respiratory compromise or opioid-related problems. They were initially going to do 1,650 patients in 16 sites. It turned out to be about 1,335. They collected 12 high-risk variables and ended up with a prediction model for their results and a prediction score that was predicated on five things. Age over 60, and as I showed earlier in other studies, worsening as you get older, male proclivity, opioid naivety, sleep disorders, and congestive heart failure. When viewed against just hypoxemic events that were recorded 21%, 46% of the events were noted in these particular patients. I think the future with all artificial intelligence and decision support system could look something like this. This is by Ronin and others in 2017 in the Journal of Clinical Monitoring, where they try to create a smart respiratory monitor uh, based on the development of what they called an integrated pulmonary index algorithm. And if you look at the far left, it says SpO2 is normal, pulse rate is normal, and it only compares the levels of CO2 on the left across the respiratory rate. And the boxes and scores are as identified. So if you have a respiratory rate of less than five, that's a red box. If you've got a respiratory rate of 25 to 35 at the top, that's a yellow box. And what they do is they contrast the two. So if we look at somebody with an end tidal CO2 of 35 to 45, which many of us think is normal, and they have a respiratory rate of 25 to 35 or 10 to 20, those are green boxes, those are go-aheads. Obviously, if you have a very low end tidal CO2, less than 20, at any respiratory rate, those are all red boxes. Then you can take that score, whatever box you're in, and go over to the one on the left. And now we're taking the score across the top line. So if you have a seven, but your pulse oximeter is reading 87%, you can see you score three requires intervention. We go down patient status, one to four, one to two requires immediate intervention, three to four requires intervention, 10 is normal, eight to nine within normal range. What this is doing is trying to integrate various pieces of information your respiratory rate, your pulse rate, your uh, pulse oximeter, and your end tidal CO2 into an integrated number that then can help define risk and determine where a patient should be. This has not been substantiated or validated to date, to my knowledge, but this is the wave of the future. So with that, I thank you for the opportunity to share some time with you on this webinar. And I hope I've triggered some thoughts for change, as well as confirmed things you already believe in. Have a nice day.
Thanks for listening. If you have any questions for Dr. Vendor, send them to info at respiratorycompromise.org with the subject Vendor Presentation. Again, that's info at respiratorycompromise.org with the subject Vendor Presentation. If you're interested in learning more about respiratory compromise, please sign up to receive our newsletters at respiratorycompromise.org. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash respiratorycompromise. And subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.